What is going on? Welcome to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Happy Tuesday. It's Jamie Dodd. It's Thomas Drance, my co-host, who's also a Canucks insider and also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. You want to get the sweater jokes in? Why don't we want to get that out of the way right now? So if you go to Sportsnet 650 on Twitter, at Sportsnet 650, our producer Dom has shared a photo of Jamie Dodd's unbearable (laughs) sweater. It's a sweater of the finest quality. (laughs) Yeah, I have... uh... Look, listen, I'm not going to panda sweater. <laughs> but let's just say that you and I are dressed as polar opposites. Yes, very good. I uh I have an, an article of clothing called my bear sweater, which is pretty much what it sounds like. It's just a, a brown sweater with a picture of like a not threatening bear's face on yeah, it. Yeah, it's it's embarrassing. It's like a sleepy, kind of just relaxed bear on it, is how I would describe it. Uh and it's my bear sweater, and it's very popular here at the Sportsnet six fifty office. I love it as well. So I'm thrilled to be wearing uh the bear sweater today. I don't know if it's a uh, a very special episode of Canucks Talk, as well, was, no, as look, was said on on Twitter. Look, before you put that on next time, you should pause, <laughs> okay, and think and think. If I do this, then will anyone take me seriously? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not as concerned about that. I don't care. <laughs> People want to take me seriously. Oh, let's time. be real. I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just siphoning statements into uh, bear puns. Yeah, that's all I do. Uh, anyways, enough of that. But uh, if you have any bear puns, six fifty, six fifty is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, Canucks lose. In overtime, 5-4 New Jersey, but... A grizzly loss? No, not a, gri- <laughs> not a grizzly loss. Oh, are, are, we doing the, are we doing the moral victories? We're doing the moral, moral victories, victories Moral victories! Uh, is that the new? Is that going to be the new Colorado game? You know oh. what I mean? They're like, hey, remember how they played in Colorado that one time? Yeah. Now, the difference is they won that game. So, they ultimately well, lost Well, and they didn't allow three goals against in 50 seconds. In a minute, seconds. yeah. Um, look... I'm here for moral victories if they come wrapped in that much entertainment. I'm going to be honest yeah, with you. Yeah, man. That was like pretty close to a uh, – obviously, they got a point, which is an ideal. Other than the point. You'd prefer that, they allowed a late goal. That Yes. That was almost a perfect tank game, right? Because played pretty, pretty well. Close. It was entertaining. The crowd was really into it. It like, was super out, fun. Shout out to the New Jersey crowd. I thought that was really no, fun. How, how would you not be into it with a team like that? Yeah. That Devils team is super fun. Like oh, they're yeah. they're so fast, they're electric to watch. And they're just yeah, I mean they're just tremendous. You had Jack Hughes playing to the crowd and they were eating it up, and we'll get into it a little bit more about Hughes, but oh. you know, you even go down the list, like Pod Colson playing his first game back. We can talk more about him, but he played pretty well. He looked good. You had some fun moments out of him. And and now it's one game and we'll see how long it lasts and all that, but there were like legitimate hey, they they controlled chances and, and controlled play against a legit opponent in a way they haven't very often this year. So hey. That's that's something you can at least feel a little good a little bit good about. So I, there are a lot to like about that game. Vasily Pod Colson's return to the lineup, I think, was starry. Frankly, like I thought his comfort carrying the puck and his dis- the discipline with which he just attacked the net, I thought was standout. I liked Dakota Joshua up the lineup. I know that Dakota Joshua ultimately got flipped for Pod Colson yep. a bit a little late in the game, but you know 
when I'm looking at a guy like Dakota Joshua, one thing I often look for is, like, puck along the wall in the defensive zone. Do you get it out? You know, like, mm. and I remember thinking this about Dale Weiss. Like, Dale Weiss, I know this is a ridiculous comp, but it's like, Dale Weiss was this fourth liner, you know, played with, what, Volpatti and whomever mm-hmm. in, as a rookie, and started, you know, an Alain Vigneault-like million shifts in his def- in the defensive end. But one thing he was really good at was when the puck came to him on the wall, he'd A, be able to retrieve it sharply off of it, and B, get it out every time, every time, with, like, extraordinary discipline. Now, he didn't show a lot else, but when you're in that role, when you're trying to carve out minutes, like, that detail is your job. Yeah. And I always think that if a guy, especially a young guy, like, sub-25, or 25 or younger, who's in sort of, like, competing to be in a bottom of the lineup role if they can do that consistently they can probably do more with a green light like that to me is always like a sign of something if you're really good at it I thought I thought Dakota Joshua was really good at that yesterday I really liked his game overall I really liked Sheldon Dries again <laughs> well, he was good uh, I know Tockett was giving Dries some shine uh, he should game as well but I just want to say Dries, on the Joshua point, Dries can play man on I, the Joshua point Tockett talked uh it was about Pod Colson yesterday but saying we need more wall players right and yep. Joshua can fit into that mix a little bit as well, but it can't just be theoretical because you're big. You know what I mean? Because you're no, big and strong. No, it's no. like you have to actually do the things on the well, wall that make you a wall player like Joshua is, is well, proving at, that he can do. Look at Jack Stanika, who, like, is, is Stanika, when's Stanika going to get in again? I don't know. Right? Yeah. Feels like it might be a bit. Snipe in the corner. Okay, Philip Giuseppe. there is no reason that he hasn't played 50 games for the Canucks over the last two seasons. He has made this team by rights out of training camp twice. He's fast. His track record at the NHL suggests that he's like a fringe third-line scorer, Mm -hmm. right? Like, for his career, he's like a low-end third-line, high-end fourth-line scorer. Scorer. Killer along the wall, big, smart. Like, I just don't understand how it's taken this guy this long to get a a look. I hope he he runs with it because he's definitely good. He's Phil DiGiuseppe, in my mind, is like an absolute NHL player. It's been surprising. I mean, that was certainly the track record. He was part of that really big class of kind of quad A, fringe NHL, really good AHL guys that the the Benning regime signed Club spent in their last off season. Yep. And yeah, the, the track record was like, hey, this is a guy that can definitely play in the NHL that has some hands that can contribute depth scoring for and, you. And he's just never had that opportunity. And yet. injuries are a big part of the story mm-hmm. for, for Phil DiGiuseppe, especially down the stretch last year when like Nick Patan got what 17 18 games by the way also was fine um so yeah i mean anyway i i have more time than i should for things like phil d giuseppe getting end. a run of games yeah. sheldon dries <laughs> dakota joshua hey look like these guys these guys can play like you know are they great some of them are you know, I still think like a guy like Joshua to me, I, I'm really curious if he gets a lengthy look in a top mm-hmm. nine role. I'm actually curious to see what that looks like. I'm less curious to see that with Dries and Di Giuseppe, but like I, I think most of these guys are NHL players, right? Like this, this team's problem isn't that they're like bereft of NHL level no, no. players. No, it's a very different situation than Chicago, Arizona, et cetera, et cetera. No, like the uh, exactly. real talent deficit teams, which is why I've been calling for the. Well, I've been calling the tank, uh, you know, not an impossibility, but an unlikelihood. Yeah. 2-1-1 one, one in the Rick Tockett era. <laughs> let's let's go. All caps, boys. 2-1-1. I, one, one. I mean, 
They're playing well. Yeah, that's the thing. So beyond just kind of the end of some of the individual guys we're highlighting, and especially down the roster and Pod Colson. Now, I thought especially in the third period, the Canucks really controlled play. I don't know if that was New Jersey maybe being not very sharp coming out of the break. Maybe they weren't didn't quite have their game face on and their legs got a little tired uh, towards the end of the game. Or if it was the Canucks, just, you know, on talent alone, kind of, or not talent, but just through earning that that uh, control of play that they had in the well, third period. I think it was the best 20 minutes that they played all season, the third period last night. Um, I wish that I was tactically savvy enough to tell you what I think happened, mm. because I think the Canucks saw something and found a way to prevent the Devils from doing that, like either high flippy or puck into space behind the Canucks defenseman, faster Devils skaters skate onto it, odd man rush chance ensues, because the Devils generated those at will in the first 30 minutes. Like, we often think about like luck or bounces yep. as being like w- the final touch, what a finish looks like, does it hit the post? Right? Is is it a spectacular save? Does it miss? We often think about sort of those finer edges, the finishing game and how luck impacts it. But luck also impacts the generation of scoring chances, right? And the Devils, to me, throughout the first half of that game, felt like they were an inch or two away from blowing the game open on multiple rush chances. It was like, you know, a two-on-three and a Canucks defender just gets an, a, you know, a, a touch of the puck. Mm-hmm. Or... A two-on-three, the pass is just behind the shooter and the scoring chance isn't quite right or whatever. But it was like a, a collection of chances at chances that the Devils were like a centimeter away from capitalizing and bar- capitalizing on and burying the Canucks in the first 30 minutes. Now, ultimately, the Heischer line was so overwhelming that they did do damage with two goals in 13 seconds. And, <laughs> then, and then Jack Hughes, um, you know, sort of uh, the Jack Hughes line puts the final nail in the coffin the 4-1 goal ultimately that doesn't hold up as the winner thanks to the Canucks comeback but yeah I mean that, that was the wheels fell off for the Canucks um and I think showed the limitations of this club's defensive group pretty securely yeah. in that stretch there are there is like they did play well so I don't want to downplay that but there is something to be said about you know you're but like, they hey, played they, well for them well right? yeah like, they played really well except for the 50 second stretch where they gave up three goals it has well, big like other than that how was the play Mrs. Lincoln vibes and, you know what I mean it's like that's a pretty big caveat well, and, the, and the second one to have the response shift where you give up like what was it three shots and there's two like dire giveaways mm-hmm. in that stretch like that's that's the second Palak goal, right? You're talking yeah, about, oh, yeah. yeah. And like that, man, that's happened so much this year where it's just everyone is flat-footed watching the puck. Absolute and it just chaos. Kind of rebound, rebound, bo- shot from the slot, shot from the slot. Like, man, that's the thing while I'm, while I'm so reluctant to pin any blame on goalies in this because there's so many chances that look like Sorry, that where everyone's I, just standing around. That's also why I'm not willing to put, place any blame on structure because it's like ultimately these are snap decisions, reaction plays. You know, like yeah. at some point do you have – Guys with high enough defensive IQ to make better plays than that, you know, because the Devils do. And it showed, right? Like, there were moments the Canucks forecheck played last night, but the Devils still kept finding interesting, creative ways. Like, you have to make skilled plays out of your own end. Mm -hmm. Like, Chris Tanev holding on to the puck for an extra second, you know, and making finding that outlet. Like, those are skilled plays. Those are incredible passes. It's not just what Kuzmenko did on his goal, which was a beauty, by the way. It's also... You know, the the spin pass outlet, the the quick stop-ups by, like, Thomas Tatar to split D and then send it the other way. Um, number seven, Jonas Siegenthaler mm-hmm. had a brilliant one of those in overtime where, you know, guys were converging on him. Just a little pop. I mean, 
it's also those. Those are the plays that just aren't in the Canucks repertoire outside of Quinn Hughes and, and occasionally Ethan Bear on retrievals, right? It's it's a real problem. Um, we should- anyway, I thought it showed on that in that stretch. But I think the Canucks, sorry, I forgot to make my major point because I did my usual digression. Yes. My major point is I think the Canucks did something to neuter the way that the Devils were able to attack against the grain on them. Like, they, they took some vitality out of the Devils' north-south game, uh, especially in that third period, and the Devils stopped generating those sorts of rush, even chances at chances. And at that point, the Canucks were really able to control the game uh, really impressively in the final 20 minutes uh, and also negate the lead, right? So, yeah, no, look, a lot to like. And, and I think also a lot to like in fitting within the context of it's been a pretty good start for Rick Tockett. Mm-hmm. Outside of an incredibly dire performance in Seattle. Well, the worst performance of the season. Yeah. So it's so it's uh, it's hard to analyze because we're only at 190 minutes of yeah. five on five and last time. Two of those are against Chicago and Columbus. Literal like and, in scare yeah. quotes NHL teams. Like put the same scare quotes that you put around Jamie Dodd's fashion sense <laughs> around <laughs> Chicago and uh, Columbus as NHL teams. Um, so yes, but on the whole, we're now looking at a team like the five on five goaltending has actually been worse. In Tuckett's four games than it was under Boudreaux, somehow. Canucks have still outscored their opposition by one, five on five, and that's despite the Seattle uh, whatever that was. Um, It's too early to say much, but there are some indications that this team's five on five form has uh, become a little bit more robust. Uh, You know, JT Miller's had a few decent games at center. I I didn't like his game that much last night, Uh, but... Obviously, he was better in the third. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's on watch now, right? Like, I need to see, what, 26 more games yeah, before, I mean, I, uh, before I read much like almost, into it? almost the remainder of the season, Yeah, really. Well, and that's good because we have that to sort of – but but it's on watch, you know, four games, 57-plus percent control of scoring chances across those four games, ton of qualifiers apply, including quality of competition and on and on, and the fact that the team hasn't really had a lot of practice time. So it's not like – there've been as there's been a significant systematic overhaul that we should credit to Taki yet. But I do think a game like that finally they face a quality opponent and and show up, right? And, uh, under Taki, not finally in their fourth the second chance. And look, if they play that hard and play with that type of pace, I mean, this team could be on to something. No. What is that something? Yeah. <laughs> Not, remains to be seen. Not nearly, uh, not nearly good enough, but still. Uh, there's other stuff I want to get to, but before we move on from the game from last night, I do want to just take a second or a minute to talk about Jack Hughes. Um, not Bill Burr? <laughs> no, not Bill Burr. Can we talk Although, about Bill Burr? It, interesting quick? that he was watching the game. I can, was not expecting can, that. Can, can I quickly do my Bill sure, Burr thing? do a quick Bill Burr thing. First of all, I'm honored to be discussing Bill Burr, all-time great podcast guest <laughs> on the radio on slash podcast. on a podcast. Yes. But uh, Bill Burr took serious objection to the officiating. Mm-hmm. Um, the call, the non-call on Sharon Govich was right. That was a good non-call by the officials. The hooking call on Kuzmenko that resulted in the game winner was an obvious no-doubter. Ten out of ten times it has to go that way call um, against the Canucks winger. So, 
Sorry, Bill Take Burr. Take that, Bill Burr. Fading. Love your. You love your comedy. Fading your takes. You're on notice. Um, Jack Hughes, man, what an incredible pleasure to watch him oh. play hockey. Like, wow, the pace he plays at with the puck and just the incredible stress he puts on the defense every single time he has the puck. I was going to say in the offensive zone, but really anywhere on the ice, right? Because even in the neutral zone, he's backing you off and he's putting pressure on the puck. And it reminded me of, there were there were so many times where everyone collapsed to him as he kind of dashed down the wing or dashed into the zone towards the net. And then there's just be so much space higher up in the zone. And normally you look at it and say, well, but you don't really want to like pass back to the point because that's not an efficient area to get your shots. But I thought the Devils did a pretty good job of filling that space kind of in the high slot and trying to generate chances from that way. And man, I was just like, obviously I've seen Jack Hughes play plenty of games, but that was an incredible performance. And like seeing him play to the crowd and the MVP chance and all of that, uh, that was a blast. I just want to take a, a second to appreciate what Jack Hughes was able to do on the ice, man. I loved, I loved the way that no matter what power play or not, but it was especially obvious on the winning goal. When, when the devils get set up, Jack Hughes clearly has free reign to just roam to where the puck is, Mm. call for it (laughs) and send his teammates aside and just cook. Right? Like, it's rare that you'll see a team function that way, but it makes so much sense. Like, no matter what, he's the guy you want making the deke, taking the shot, making, making the, the pass, pass. Yeah, like, doing whatever. Yeah, and he'll just skate over to his teammates, and he just wants it. He just wants it. He goes after it. He makes himself available, and and if if his teammates won't take that option, he'll skate over to them and send them back to where from whence he came. Like, it's awesome. It, it was such a cool performance from that perspective. Um, yeah, I mean... Jack Hughes is going to be a Hart Trophy finalist for a reason. That team is special, and they've got him for $8 million for the next seven years. Pretty good. Yikes. Pretty, pretty good Yikes. for them. Uh, okay, uh, one other thing I wanted to hit here before we go to break. Shanna Goldman is going to join us uh, on the other side. Always looking forward to chatting with Shanna. Uh, interesting report from Emily Kaplan of ESPN today, touching on uh, just kind of in a roundup on some things going on around the league before the trade deadline. Uh, It includes this item on Thatcher Demko, so kind of two pieces here. First, she says, per sources, at least four teams have called Vancouver asking about Demko's availability, and the Canucks haven't said no to any of those teams. She also says the goalie hasn't played since December 1st because of a lower body injury, and according to Kaplan, he's about a week and a half away from getting back on the ice. Now, per our own Dan Murphy, and also now the Canucks have posted about it on Twitter as well, Demko skated with the team at practice in New York at Madison Square Garden today. But two interesting items there uh, from Emily Kaplan, really good reporter, really locked in for ESPN. And, you know, one, I mean, this echoes things that we've heard from Elliot Friedman, among others. But just to hear, the, I, I like the way she put it, right? Teams have called and they haven't said no. So any idea that... We, we seem to have moved past any idea that Thatcher Demko is on the untouchable list, right? Like, if, if you are calling, if you're getting calls and you're not immediately saying, no, forget about it, we're not doing it, by definition, that player is not on your untouchable list. Now, this is this is a far cry from, hey, there's really meaningful interest, like teams could just be calling, doing their due diligence, kicking tires. This is a far cry from he's going to be traded, but it's just another report indicating that it's at least 
a possibility. And then the other interesting thing is about a week and a half away from potentially playing. Now, look, he practiced today. We'll see what that timeline looks like ultimately, but just kind of planning it out and looking at the Canucks schedule, that would put him on track for a return February 18th against the Flyers at home, which would end up being an 11-week absence. Last played on December 1st. So if it is a week and a half from now, that would be an 11-week absence for Thatcher. Sorry, Thatcher against Demko. who? Against? against Philly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... And I think there's kind of two things in tension here, right? Like, well, on the one hand, it's... We've talked about it. Slow, slow play playing. It. Slow play. And and I do think that's what's happening. Of course. Come on. Yeah. I yeah. Like, like, I don't think there's anything to see here from a... Oh, he had an eight-week timeline and yeah, it's eleven it's, weeks. No, 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 and no, 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 no. McKay have played forty-five. Like, let's not do that. I don't think that's what's going on. I think this is abundance of caution that also serves the club's rational self-interest. But I think I do think there are two things that are kind of at, at tension here, which is that one, you want to slow play him because of you know you're you're not interested in picking up extra points down the stretch this year. But if there is legitimate interest. How many healthy games of Thatcher Demko do teams want to see if they're going to make a move of that magnitude in season, right? Not for the future, because, yeah, that's a huge part of why you trade for Thatcher Demko is you're getting him for the next three years at a really reasonable cap hit. But, I mean, if you're a team that wants to do damage in the playoffs this year, if he has two starts under his belt, is that is that doing it for you? Do you need three? Do you need four? How much do you actually need? I think that's an interesting wrinkle here. Well, as well. I think you just need to see that he's dialed and that there's nothing like goalies are so ephemeral, you know what I mean? And and Demko when last week first of all, we haven't seen him be healthy in a long time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, not just that he only played the two months, but that he also got injured down the stretch last season. So I think seeing him hold up and play a week worth of games gives you some certainty, particularly in the wake of um who was the guy who got traded and then couldn't play? But there's been teams are really reluctant to do these deals increasingly. Yeah. You need to see that a guy's healthy. Secondly, I think you want to see in a goalie's case that like there's nothing mental going on, right? Like he can do the job. And then Demko's value is not going to be based on his performance this season anyway. It's going to be based on the upside that he has, right? It's going to be based on an understanding that everyone has about what this guy can do. Yes. The but the caveat to that is if you are not convinced what his upside is going to be this year, is it the kind of thing you kick down the road to the summer, right? Like if you're New Jersey, for instance, and you have questions about where his game's going to be at down the stretch and into the playoffs, do you say, you know what? We're interested, but we revisit it at the draft. That, that's the question I would have. Well, I think so long as, by the way, um, Vanacek, what's his first name again? Vitek. I, I was calling him Vitali. Vitaly Vanacek yesterday on the show, someone made fun of me for thinking Vanacek is Italian, which I don't. I just messed up his first name. Excuse me, and apologies to Vanacek. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, let's let's use the New Jersey Devils as an instructive example, right? Mm-hmm. So long as Vanacek's not in the deal, like, would the Canucks have interest in a gently used Mackenzie Blackwood? One year from RFA? I mean, you'd probably have to do it to make the money work, even at this point. Like, you'd probably have to take it back. Well, the Devils have space, though. The Devils are one of those teams with some space, right? They have $2 million in space, so, you know, you could probably figure it out. They're, um, they're in LTI, but only just. So, I, I mean, yeah, you're right. You probably have to take someone back. I think, I think in a world where you do that, and, and it's like Demko's your backup, but mm. 
your backup with yeah. extreme upside. Extreme, like your backup who, you know, at the very least, if he shows down the stretch for you that he's Demko, yeah. you're going to play him. And if he doesn't, he's your backup, and that's fine. We, we got a break, but the other really interesting thing to me about Demko is just the teams that make sense as a destination also have really enticing assets to potentially offer. We can start talking about LA, Kings, New Jersey, like Pittsburgh, B- Buffalo people suggest Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. I think those, are the, that, those would be my guess on the four. Now, I don't know about Pittsburgh as much, but Buffalo, mm. New Jersey... Well, there's uh, LA. there's real concerns about Tristan Jari. I mean, there are well but his I'm health. Not, sorry, sorry, but I mean in terms of assets to offer the Canucks. Well, sure. I think Pittsburgh's the odd team out in that regard, right? But if you look at what LA, New Jersey, and Buffalo could well, offer, except except they could offer a big expiring contract in Jason Zucker, and could take a contract back. Yep. You know, I mean that uh, there's there's lots of options from from the Pittsburgh end. Yep. That I think would make sense. That's interesting. Uh, Something to monitor. Trade deadline less than a month away now. We will talk about that and more. Shana Goldman from The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast is up next. It's Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650, live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Sportsnet 650 has teamed up with the Clayton Public House in Surrey to bring you the big football party on Super Sunday this February, February 12th, this Sunday, excuse me, February 12th, hosted by Randeep Janda. Reserve your table now at theclaytonpub.com. There will be tailgate and drink specials, plus prizing throughout the day. Kickoff is at 3.30. The Clayton Public House. Good food, good people, good times. Going to be joined momentarily here on the line by one of our favorites, Shana Goldman of The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast. Get her thoughts, uh, on the game last night, I want to run by uh, her thoughts on the Dylan Cousins extension in Buffalo. Drancer, big contract. Oh, I thought we'd today. I thought we'd save that for the last segment. Well, we might. I've got a whole bit to do on Cousins. <laughs> it's it, it ties into the conversation we were having yesterday, right? With um, better where better early bet young, bet yeah, often. better early bet young, and also where the where the trend is for contracts like that in the NHL. But right now, we are very pleased to be joined, as mentioned on the line. Uh, Shannon Goldman, you read her at The Athletic. You can hear her on the Too Many Men podcast. We're always delighted to have her on the show. Shannon, thanks very much for doing this. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Um, so the Canucks, they they lose in overtime. First game of the post-Bo Horvat era against the uh, Devils last night. You know, despite the overtime loss, kind of the takeaway here is they, they played pretty well. They actually showed some decent form uh, in, I think, only the fourth game under new head coach Rick Tockett. I know you keep a pretty close eye on the Devils, what what did you make of the game last night, and uh, what did you what did you think the story of the game was? Well, the story easily could have been how the Canucks spirals, right? It could have been how they allowed three goals in under a minute, two from Palat, one from Hughes, and how things can go south so quickly. You know, that first goal against is bad. The response goal against is worse, and now adding the third one, everything can go even further downhill very quickly. And a team like the Devils are good at piling it on. But the resilience is really the takeaway for me from the Canucks perspective because they could have folded right there and everyone probably would have understood. Here's your first game without Bo Horvat. Here's, you know, we know the Cavs has gone on this season. Here's a top team in the East you're going up against, someone you don't see very often who 
can make their opponents look bad, they did manage to battle back and force overtime. So for them, that's a win right there. You know, they they bounced back, they rebounded when things could have easily broken down and just been miserable through the rest of the period and the third. <laughs> Shayna, was there anything you noticed that the Canucks did? This is not a particularly fast team. In fact, the speed is one of their biggest issues this season, and yet against probably the fastest show on ice, um, it felt like as the game went along, the Canucks found answers to address that. Did you notice anything that the Canucks did well to handle the devil's speed? You know what? I wonder how much a team just loosens up when they realize they don't have anything to lose. Like The Devils are a really interesting team because it felt like to open the season, everyone around the league was caught on their heels playing them, and then a lot of teams study them, which is what you do. You adapt to the team that they've become. They've become one of the fastest teams in the league, and they're super skilled, and their defense is very active. Now you can scout that accordingly. Um, and teams obviously can still get caught against that and, and look really stupid, you know, because the Devils are really good. But I think when you're down in a game like that and you don't spiral, you can just loosen up and try to play to your strengths and try to find ways around their speed instead of, you know, focusing and, and like micromanaging yourself to not get caught behind in plays. You're like you're already playing a game that was pretty loose defensively, so why not just go for it and see what can happen? And, you know, teams that take leads like that can obviously get complacent, especially when they take leads in the way the Devils did. They could have felt like they just sealed that game right there in a minute of play and turned the game on its head. So I think it's a mix of the Canucks working through the complacency of the Devils and, you know, just overall loosening up and trying to, to find a way when they easily were counted out. Shana, you've watched... JT Miller's career probably closer than just about anybody, given uh, your time covering the Rangers um, as he was coming up in this league. Um, what were your impressions of him playing center yesterday? Is it consistent with what you've seen before? Because I know you've talked a lot about how, you know, not playing center, not having the opportunity to do that as a younger player, um, sort of in some ways shaped his career and development. Yeah, I definitely want to see a bit more from him down the middle because I'm sure it's an adjustment seeing as he hasn't played it much in his career. But, you know, there were a lot of shots against while he was on the ice and a lot of quality chances. So, you know, it's a good question of can he handle the defensive responsibilities of playing down the middle? Is there someone the Canucks can pair him with on the wing maybe to handle that a little bit more? Generally speaking, we know that's the center's job. But, you know, untraditional things happen. If if you're Mark Stone, it doesn't matter who your center is. You're the one handling the defensive responsibility. So if Vancouver can find that option for him, that's something else. Or maybe somehow he can adapt to it with a new coach that, you know, approaches things differently. Um, it definitely isn't encouraging, but it's, it's something that if the Canucks wants to play center, I think he just has to keep playing through. Like this season – Essentially, it doesn't matter on the score sheet, right? It doesn't matter in the standings, but if you can try to make, you know, meaningful change with players and get them to adapt to the roles the rest of the season, that's what you have to do. So you just have to play through the bad and find the good at the end of it. It's just a question if they're actually as good at the end of it here. Shana, just before we move on from the game last night, um, Jack Hughes is having a phenomenal season, and I was really, really impressed. We were waxing poetic about his performance last night earlier in the show, and, you know, when we rattle off the kind of list of, of top forwards in the game other than Connor McDavid, you know, we talk about Austin Matthews and Nathan McKinnon and Leon Dreisaitl and go down the list. I mean, how close is Jack Hughes to kind of joining that tier in the NHL, or, or is he already there with what he's done this year? 
Yeah, he's definitely in the superstar tier. There's no question about it. And it's just been years of progress to getting to this point. And right now we're seeing so much more decisiveness in his game. You know, like there are players around the league who are very content with being elite in transition and elite playmakers. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there are players who like to take it a step further. That's the Conor McDavid of the world who figure out ways to just keep getting better when you think he's hit his ceiling. And I think Jack Hughes is doing that this year. Because he's much more of a frequent shooter. He's much better cutting to the, you know, more dangerous areas of the ice. He's even tougher to defend because of that. Right now, he's in that superstar tier. I think he can even take it up a notch from here and really solidify himself as one of the best centers in the league. You know, he's still young. I think that's that's where he could go, especially, you know, if he keeps playing with high-end wingers and isn't playing with guys like Eric Halla super consistently. Um, right now, it's MVP caliber stuff. And it's unfortunate for him that it's McDavid's year to lose, and he is the clear winner at this point for the Hart Trophy. But I think Jack Hughes can finish top three if he keeps up this pace. In conversation with uh, Shannon Goldman of The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast here, and uh, I just want to check in with you on the Canucks' next opponent on this road trip as well, which is the New York Rangers. I know another team you're, uh, you, you always keep a close eye on. And I, I know the book last year on the Rangers was kind of underwhelming underlying numbers, but it didn't matter that much because uh, Igor Shosturkin is so incredible. This year, you know, Shosturkin's game hasn't quite been there. What, what's been the story of the, the success that the Rangers have enjoyed so far this year? So I think Shosturkin took a little bit longer to get into the swing of things this season, which, I, I mean, for me, I say it's understandable when you consider the workload he played that was so different from, you know, regular season alone was more than he had ever played in a single year. You add in a long playoff run and, you know, it can weigh on a player's game. We see it around the league now, how many goaltenders aren't accustomed to playing these huge workloads anymore because the league's trended away from it, and how does it impact their game? I think it did start the season, but it looks like, you know, he's really hitting his stride now. Um, the problem for them is the way the Rangers are different from last year is they're not just finishing their chances. It's not as easy for them as it was, and they're really behind in all situations in, you know, the difference between goals, you know, expected goals and actual goals. While they typically outperform it, and we look at that and say, Maybe it's not sustainable, but we do know they have really good finishing talent, so maybe they can keep it up. And it's like, well, they won't, they always. This year, the finishing talent's still there, but it's just not clicking at the same rate, and that's especially true on the power play, which is should be one of the Rangers' best weapons. So that's the big difference, I would say, from last year to this year. Shana, let's move to league news. Um, Thatcher Demko, Emily Kaplan at ESPN, reported that when teams are calling these days, and there's at least four teams that have done so, uh, the Canucks aren't ex- immediately hanging up the phone when Thatcher Demko's name is broached. Um, wh- what's your view of where the goaltender market is likely to trend here? We've seen some inflation in terms of salaries for starters and for backups. That's That would be part of Demko's appeal, presumably, since he you know costs as much as a, as a Cal Peterson. Um but where where do you think his value would be given his struggles this season and his injury status? So a healthy statue Demko, I would think, is he's not the top tier of goalies, and that's okay because that's it's a top tier for a reason. Not everyone can be in it with the Shesterkins, the Vasilevskis, the Helen Bucks, and the Sorokins. But I do think that he can be a very good one A. I just wonder is it the environment? that needs to change for him to get there. You know, I don't, I I can't say anything about goalie coaching and things like that. Like I don't know enough there, 
but does he need a different approach? Does he need something different individually? Is it the circumstances around him? So that's where, you know, my head kind of turns. Can he manage chaos season to season to season? Because he did really well last year until the end of the year, and this year it didn't, you know, work out for him. So that's the one question. Um, You know, his cap hit's manageable, though, and, you know, goalies are something – no one knows how to truly analyze, especially teams. General managers will say it all the time that they don't truly understand goaltending. So, you know, the cost is something that I think most teams should be willing to absorb. There should be opportunities for him to bounce back if it wasn't in Vancouver. But, you know, it would be it really would be interesting if Vancouver was willing to move on from him. It would be a commitment to tearing it down, right? If that's if that's what they take. But I, I would be intrigued at, like, what other teams are interesting, interested because they should be. If you can get a goaltender who is at least above average at a good cost, and I think he checks both those boxes, you know, it's someone that a lot of teams should be interested in. Yeah, and I wonder, Shana, because, you know, as you said, obviously the contract, it's it's so much less expensive, probably both in terms of AAV, but certainly length, than what you would pay for a goalie with Thatcher Demko's upside on the open market. And, you know, typically we don't always see goalies get traded for a big haul. The goalie market can be a little funky that way, but I do wonder just the upside and the the potential for surplus value is so great with Thatcher Demko if he could be kind of the guy that would buck the trend in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, I think the thing with goalie trades is so tough is, like, if you make a move at the deadline, generally it's not for a starter, it's for a backup. And how much time are they truly going to get to get acclimated to the system before being thrown into, you know, the mix and then you have the playoffs so soon after that? It's it's so much different for a goalie versus a skater, especially if they're a backup, which is what we tend to see move. So it feels like, to me, if a starting goalie is going to be on the move, it's it's an off-season move, and that gives that – player a lot of time to learn the team they're playing for learn the coaching staff and the goalie staff and figure out a way to you know maximize his game and maybe make adjustments I I think you know this is a goaltender who's 27 years old like I would think if anyone can make adjustments it's a goalie who's in their 20s versus you know the 33 year old veteran or something like that like I don't know there's I just think there's a lot more potential and maybe if a team's willing to spice it up and that's always a big question they would you know kind of leap at that opportunity why not Shana what contender should be like putting on our putting on our fun hypotheticals hats what contender should be in the market to make an in-season Demco move in your view who could benefit the most Ooh, this is a good question um okay so Pittsburgh is a team that I think needs another goaltender um don't know the injury status of Tristan Jari. I don't know how much they should trust their crease going into the playoffs. They don't need a repeat of last year where they end mm. up going down to their third string goalie. And it's not like it's Louis Domingue's fault because they lost in the playoffs. But if you want to maximize on the years that you have Crosby, Latang, and Malkin still there and still playing at this level, I think their team that would be super interesting to look at. Um, I'm not opposed to the Devils looking at a goaltender, it's not the biggest need. Their strength has been that they don't force their goaltenders to do too much. Uh, and Vitek Vanacek's been very good, and he's been above average most nights, so they have that working for them. But I don't think you can trust Mackenzie Blackwood in net at all. So, you know, having maybe a more split tandem could be pretty interesting for them. Also because I'd be curious how Vanacek's game responds the rest of the year in this great of a role. It's not something, you know, he's so accustomed to playing. And... I'm not sure. Oh, in the West, uh, the Kings. Mm. Probably isn't great for them, but, you know, Jonathan Quick was 
pretty terrible. I, you know what? Maybe I don't even want to say Phoenix Copley's been great. He's been good for them. But, you know, the bar was pretty low for what they needed. So those are the teams for me. It's L.A., it's New Jersey, it's Pittsburgh. And then the wild card in there would be Edmonton, but they don't have the money for a goaltender right now. I just wouldn't want Jack Campbell's contract if I were them. Yeah. <laughs> Hard <laughs> agree. Um, Shane, I'm going to twist the conversation to uh, upstate New York uh, and the Canucks expansion cousins, the Buffalo Sabres, who extended a guy named Cousins today. Um, the Sabres are clearly all in on avoiding bridge contracts. They've detonated the bridge at this point. They are going long on players, whether they're second-pair defensemen, second-line centermen, or potential star players in Tage Thompson. I'm curious to frame the question to you, or I want to frame the question to you in this way. Are the Sabres reacting, do you think, to the pressure that's created by what the Devils have accomplished with Heischer and Jack Hughes? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if they're reacting to the pressure of the Devils. Like, I think they know that they have a good one-two punch down the middle in Thompson and Cousins. I think they're kind of keeping up with their own trends and that signing players before their contracts actually come up and going long-term now. And, you know, for the Samuelson contract, I'm curious the influence of more traditional scouts there versus more data-driven minds. But with Tage Thompson and with Cousins, I would be curious if it is more of the data-driven mind of, pay this player through their prime, this is your window of contention. And it's kind of interesting, too, like, does this team have an internal cap? Because if you notice, like, every contract is below, besides Jeff Skinner, which was not signed by this management group, you know, it's below Tage Thompson. That's the bar, 7.1. Like, can they find something where no one's going to be making that, you know, $9, $10 million? And I'm really curious what happens with, like, Darlene in a year because of that. Um I think they're kind of just keeping up with their own trends and lead trends because it's not far off from the Boldy contract. And for them, I think it might be a win if you look at the fact that they're paying less for both of their top six centers who they went early on versus Ottawa with Dutzla and Norris. You know, they came in under both of those by a little. Shana, the Canucks did not go long with many of their core players here, right? I mean, Bo Horvat, they went mid-range five years right we, we now see where that's ended Quinn Hughes they went mid-range five years five or six five it was a six-year deal six-year deal okay so long-ish but not not seven not eight with Quinn Hughes Pedersen they bridged Brock Besser they bridged if you're a team that's done that and now the league trend is to buy guys entire prime seasons how how do you have to respond is is it possible to get as efficient <laughs> as the teams like <laughs> Buffalo and New Jersey are poised to be should some of these bets pay off? You know, this is a question management probably should have had to answer before they signed JT Miller to that ginormous contract. Um, <laughs> it, this is good. They have a really tough situation to maneuver. And the problem is, like, when you go with these contracts and these mid-range deals, you end up having to sign them at age 27, 28, 29 to the big contracts, and you don't want to be – the next San Jose Sharks, you know, Lunkter, his contract starting at age 30, and, you know, Hurdle at 28 and 29, and Burns was paid late, Vlasic was, and it becomes tricky because you don't buy up their prime. 
players are going to want to maximize their earnings at some point, and if you don't do it sooner, it's going to happen later, whether it's with you or with someone else. Um, I think Vancouver has to start moving some pieces around to make it work. Uh, Pedersen is going to cost them a lot in their next contract. I think he'll be good throughout the life of it, most likely. So, you know, that's less the player to worry about. But Brock Besser is, because that's not your elite 1C. That's your complimentary top six player. And now he's going to be in for a raise, most likely, and it's probably going to be more than a team should want to pay for. Like that, and it's unfortunate because it shouldn't be the case. That should be the player they try to get in a little bit sooner and a little bit lower, and it benefits them for the life of the contract. Like, a Connor Garland type contract or a little bit more because Brock Besser, I'm sure had more potential at the time of the signing, you know, for his bridge deal. So I think if the Canucks want to start changing that and working towards that, they're going to have to find a way to make the space to afford to play their, to pay their young players that because right now they don't have the flexibility and the luxury of doing it. And it's just going to be a repetitive pattern at this point, unless they find a way to make space. So this can happen. Shannon, we're short on time, but I just want to touch on Besser because you brought him up in the context of this conversation. Besser obviously was great during his entry-level deals and has faded since. Um, Is that a cautionary tale about the risk of going long, in your view? It can be, but it's tough because, you know, you have to wonder how much of this is an individual drag or if it's because of the circumstances around him and the team around him and you know Mm. it hasn't been the most stable environment in Vancouver throughout his tenure there you look at the defensive troubles the team has had too and that's going to weigh on his game like I think that I think if you go with term for a young player you always have an out because you can try to move that player you don't have to attach a ton of assets to them because they're a 30 year old that's you know underperforming and making nine million dollars you can go for that change of scenery trade and try to like make it work so I think that if, say, he was at this cap hit but had six years left instead of, you know, another two after this season, I still think that there's wiggle room around it. There's a team that would be willing to take the risk to take him on. Obviously, you know, the return might not be an elite player back of what, you know, you initially thought Besser was, but another team might have a player that needs to change the scenery or, you know, a draft pick can be had in return. I think that there's ways out of those contracts. Thanks, Shana. Shana, really appreciate the time as always. You're the best. Chat soon. Thanks for having me. That is Shana Goldman from The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast, getting her thoughts on the Canucks, uh, some of the things going on around the league as well. Am I going to bring this back to the Besser comp again in the third, the fourth segment after we talk to Batch? What? What Besser comp? The, the well, the the there was someone on Twitter who brought up to me Besser as a reason to, to avoid go. going mm. long, and I've got a I've got a point that I really want to make about this. Well, before we go to break, because we got batch coming up, so let's say they had done seven years, as, as opposed to his first bridge, right? Sure, his first bridge was three years as well. Yeah, correct? three years. Now he's three, three, three years in a lot. So you'd like, probably still, have, still five and a half. You'd probably have. One more year, you'd have one more year on you'd this have deal. One extra year At on the what? deal, the same AAV, yeah, maybe like an extra 300k. Yeah, so so you understand the point I'm gonna make. <laughs> Was that the point you were gonna make? <laughs> even if it doesn't work out, you're basically in the same position, even if it doesn't work out. Bridge deals are so complicated to navigate that you end up in you know, you're talking about rounding errors, even when it fails. Because the, the AAV would have been bigger than what he signed on his first bridge because you're going to term. And so you'd be at roughly this area, probably a little bit higher. But, yeah, you'd have one more extra year and you'd still be in a tough spot with Brock Besser. That's how it goes.
but yeah, I don't think it's the a outcome's reason. the same. I don't think it's a reason to uh, people avoid when wildly it's overstate the downside risk. It's wild. Yeah, that's you true. Know? It's it's anyway. You know what? It's conventional thinking where it's like keep the guy hungry. <laughs> the risk is on him now. Don't reward him. Don't reward him until he's a certain age. Yeah, the risk is on him, but the upside is too. I think there's an interesting, we will go to break here, but I think there's an interesting conversation that's percolating now about uh, shortening contract lengths in the NHL. And I think people think that would be like a big blow to the players, but I actually disagree oh, with that. for sure. I disagree with that. But anyways, that's a conversation probably for another time because now we got to go to break. Brendan Batchelor, our guy, up next, Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650, Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Brendan Batchelor, the play-by-play voice of the Vancouver Canucks here on Sportsnet 650, going to join us in a second. Uh, I did want to read this text. It, it cracked me up a little bit. It comes in unsigned. Come on, guys. Enough is enough. Trade Brock. Trade Connor. Trade Tyler. Trade Demko. Done. If only it was that easy. <laughs> Just pick up the phone and trade them all right now. If only it was that easy. Uh, but we'll see. It wouldn't surprise me if a couple of those names were gone in the near future here. Uh, sorry, sorry. Was Who of value did the person include? Demko. And even then, complicated. It's a little bit complicated, I guess. I don't it's, think it's that complicated. He's an injured player with yeah, a $5 he's million so dollar cap back. But if he comes back, then it's not complicated. I think it's complicated in season. He's an injured player. I'll give you complicated, but it's like it's not complicated to the point that it would prevent it from getting done. But if they were motivated to do it. Well, sure, but if they were motivated to do it, I mean, are they motivated to do it if it's not a home run price? No chance, which makes it complicated. Yeah. Uh, anyways, Brendan Batchelor, play-by-play voice of the Vancouver Canucks, joins us on the line now. Batch, happy to have you on. How's it, how's it going, man? It's good. I, I don't know why Canucks management can't trade all those guys. I know, right? They did it on Eastside Hockey Manager this morning. So, I mean, <laughs> if I can do it, then they can do it too, right? It's easy. Just make it happen. Come on. The salary cap doesn't exist. No problem. Teams are teams are dying to take on Tyler Myers. There's right so now. much trade activity league-wide. Yes, exactly. Have you seen the countless moves that we've been discussing on these airwaves for months and months? My goodness. <laughs> yeah, the Canucks have been by far the most active trade team uh, in the NHL this year, to be fair. Um, on the uh, on the game last night, uh, you know, pretty impressive performance, I thought. Would, would you put it up there with one of their best performances of the year? I know they lost in overtime, but given the quality of opponent on the other side, uh, I thought it was a pretty good showing. Yeah, it was it was one of their better showings in recent weeks. Certainly, uh, when you look at you know really a pretty complete effort, other than a fifty second meltdown earlier or midway through the second period, I should say, which ultimately ends up costing them the second point. But um, you know, thus far under Rick Tockett, three out of four games have looked pretty good, with the one outlier being that disappointing performance in Seattle against the Kraken. So. You know, whether this is the dead cat bounce that you expect when you make a coaching change, whether this is, you know, Rick Tockett coming in and maybe 
being able to instill some more structure. I guess we'll see in the long term. But, you know, I, I take a lot more out of the game last night than I do the wins over Chicago and Columbus before the break, just because, as you alluded to, Jamie, the quality of opponent was that much better yesterday. And the Canucks found a way to hang with the Devils and, you know, probably will feel to a certain extent hard done by that they didn't win, especially with the calls that went against them late in the game in overtime. Batch, what are you seeing different in Rick Tockett's four games, or is it too soon to tell? I mean, it's it's too soon for me to tell. I'm a puck watcher, right? So, like, I'm not breaking down the systems to the same degree that, that some people might, uh, but – it, it feels more solid. It feels more simple. It feels uh, more structured, right? These are all words that have been used quite a fair bit uh, prior to the coaching change and, you know, to criticize the way this team has played this year, both from outside the organization and within the organization. But they feel more like they're playing as a team and as a five-man unit rather than um, you know, five individuals on the ice all trying to do things that don't necessarily work with the other individuals that they're playing with. So, again, small sample size, hard to say whether, you know, this is something that will carry forward the rest of the way or if it's just a little bit of a blip here. But, you know, I think it was either Jim Rutherford or Patrick Alvine had talked about the fact, and I believe it was Rutherford, that he wanted the team to play with more structure so they could learn what their players are capable of and try and figure out who makes sense to be here long-term and who doesn't. And, you know, if this kind of play continues, then you're going to be able to learn more about your players because it seems like, at least at the moment, they're playing within a structure that will allow them to have success both individually and potentially as a team, at least in the short term here. I know they've got a light schedule the rest of the way, so they might win more games than some people might want them to. Um, But, you know, the fact-finding mission for Rick Tockett is underway, and it seems like there are some guys that are buying in. And, you know, I like the look of Pod Colson in particular last night. I thought he had a pretty good game. So, you know, it's, it's going to be a very interesting final 32 games of the year, I think, even though this team doesn't have a lot to play for in terms of traditional stakes with the playoffs. But, you know, I would imagine that in a couple months from now, we'll know a lot more about where this team wants to go, who might go there with them, and what they're going to look like longer term based on how some of these guys perform under Rick Tockett. Batch, you know, we'll obviously be debating the uh, the Bo Horvat trade and the, and the large-scale implications for years to come. But just in terms of kind of the immediate on-ice ramifications, you know, obviously a, a huge part of the team. What are the kind of big questions for the post-Bo Horvat era on the ice now that we're beginning that, uh, that you're curious to see answered here? Yeah, I mean, how they're going to deploy those minutes down the middle, I think, on the ice is, is the most interesting thing. And whether other guys can step up and be key face-off men because, you know, Horvat obviously scored a lot of goals, so you would think that they will miss a bit of that scoring punch. And he won a lot of face-offs, and he took a lot of face-offs for this group, and there aren't a lot of other guys on this roster that have shown that they can be competent face-off men. You know, JT Miller going into the game last night, I believe, was at around 51%, but he's the only guy over 50% on the roster that's a traditional full-time centerman. And so, you know, Elias Pettersson is going to take more draws. He's going to have to win more draws. You know, they, they've got Niels Oman back up. Um, his face-off numbers were 
horrid, to be perfectly honest, early in the season. So, you know, on the ice, that's the, the number one thing I look at immediately in the short term. And then the off-ice things are, you know, filling that leadership void. You know, I talked to Rick Tockett about that yesterday before the game, and he talked about, you know, if your leadership group is a, a big pie, then you've just taken a big chunk out of that pie by trading Horvat away, and you're not going to fill it with just one guy and that's where he's looking at guys like Pedersen and Hughes, who are now going to have letters on their jerseys to step up and fill more of that, that leadership role. But, you know, on the ice, there's a lot of minutes down the middle that Horvat played in, you know, certainly on the power play, um, you know, to a lesser extent on the penalty kill, and obviously at five-on-five five that are going to have to be filled, and someone's going to have to find a way to win some more face-offs, I would think, as well. Batch, what did you think of Vasily Podkolzin's return to the lineup? I know you've already complimented him, but what stood out to you, watching the puck as you do, about how he carried it <laughs> and how he took it to the net? Yeah, I mean, he uh, he just looked more confident, right? Like, there was the one play where he sort of bullied his way to the front of the net out of the corner, and that was the kind of play that we weren't seeing from Podkolzin early in the year, and you know, there's been a lot of talk about how some of the young players might have been afraid to make mistakes, early in the season while well, I was clear at least with pod Coles and through one game, but there wasn't any of that fear there. And, you know, I thought Rick Tockett was pretty complimentary of his game afterwards too. So, you know, it's amazing what particularly young players, how different they can look if you instill a bit of confidence in them and you give them a little bit of leash, a little, little bit of rope. And that's what it looked like to me for pod Coles and a guy who went down to the AHL, regained some confidence, put up some points, maybe remembered some of the strengths in his game that allow him to be the kind of player that we saw down the stretch run last year. And then you come back up to the NHL level, but there's a new head coach in place, and you know he's talking about process over results, and you know that there's not a huge expectation in terms of winning games down the stretch. It frees you up to play your, your own game a little bit more than maybe you might have felt comfortable doing early in the year when – you know, the, the former head coach had publicly said that it would be a big disaster if they missed the playoffs and there was all this pressure because the season was slipping away from them. Well, now the season's gone, and it's all about development for a guy like Todd Colson. So I like the first game, and hopefully he can build on it the rest of the way. I, I think that's a really good point about the difference in atmosphere around the team between the start of the season and now, Batch. And, you know, I think it was really painful obviously to let go of Boudreaux, but specifically the way it happened. And then you trade your captain not long after that. Those are really tough decisions and tough moments. But the result is now that you're in this environment where, as you said, the team can prioritize the process over results. And, you know, not just for Pod Colson, but I think for the team as the whole, for the coaching staff, for the front office, that's kind of a big storyline for the remaining 32 games of the year. It's just the fact that they have finally kind of created this environment where they're not scrapping for two points every night, but they can actually take a longer-term outlook on a lot of things. Yeah, and I mean, it's welcome in the sense that a lot of fans want them to take a longer-term outlook, although you know what that outlook looks like in terms of the the roster moves they make as a management group may differ from what a lot of fans want to see, but at least on the ice right now, look, they're, they're going to try to win every game. They're not going to tank. We talk about that all the time, but if the focus is on player development, as opposed to getting the two points at all costs, 
then it means that Rick Tockett has the leeway to give Pod Coles an increased opportunity and increased minutes, which I think is something that's important too, because if we're using him as an example, his minutes were really low before the club sent him down to the AHL. Um, so he can get more of an opportunity to play. He can play in different situations. He can gain more responsibility and learn what it's going to be like to play in those sorts of roles in the longer term in a relatively low-pressure environment the rest of the way this season. And, you know, this is why Canuck teams in the past and why teams that are out of the playoff race often play better down the stretch, I think, because once that pressure is off you, and, you know, it's not all about winning. You just go out and play the game, and you're not worried about other stuff. And whether you're a young player or a veteran player, I think that makes a lot of difference, especially in a Canadian market where early in the season the focus was so heavily on how poor this team had been. Well, now everybody knows that they had the bad start. Nobody's expecting the playoffs, and everybody wants to see these young players get a chance to play and develop. And so it's, it's a good opportunity in the short term for guys like Pod Colson and Oman and Hoaglander if he gets called up here at some point and you know, go down the list of young players that they can give opportunity and minutes to to see how they can grow their game here in the next few months. And, you know, as much as this season has been a, a massive disappointment compared to the expectations that many people had for this roster, it wouldn't surprise me at all if these final thirty games, thirty plus games are very important for the development of some young players that could be key parts of this roster for years to come. Batch, in that context, what do you make of Niels Hoaglander not being among the call-ups? I don't know anything in terms of having spoken to anyone in the organization, but the one thing I will say is that consistently the criticism of Niels Hoaglander's game has been his defensive awareness and his ability to play a 200-foot game. And, you know, I'm, I haven't watched him very much, if at all, in Abbotsford, so I can't speak to how his game has looked in that regard uh, while playing for the Abbotsford Canucks. But under two different head coaches prior to Rick Tockett arriving, both Travis Green and Bruce Boudreau, the trust wasn't there, and it was clearly because of defensive lapses or holes in his game that that leaned more towards the defensive side of the ice so I would imagine if I had to guess that it probably has something to do with that where they they still haven't seen the growth they want to see in his 200 foot game and so they'd like him to continue to work on that with Jeremy Colleton and, and co down in Abbotsford um, you know I would imagine that we'll see Hoaglander up with the NHL team you know before long or before the end of the season at the very least but you know, for a player that came into the NHL, had such a great rookie season, and has kind of seen things take a step back in consecutive years, partially due to injury, and then, of course, this year being sent down to the AHL for the first time, it might just be the best thing for him, for him to play and learn and stay down in Abbotsford and continue to try and grow his overall game. Because we know the offensive capabilities. We've seen what he's been able to do in terms of scoring goals and creating offense when he's been at his best at the NHL level. But unless you're a very consistent high point guy, you know, you have to be able to play on the defensive side of the puck too, especially with the level of expectation that Tockett is placing on his players to be responsible at both ends of the ice coming in here as the head coach. And if Hoaglander can't grow that part of his game, then he may not get 
as many opportunities as people might hope um, just because to be successful at the NHL level and to be a part of a team that wants to turn things around and get itself back to being a playoff team and a winning team, there has to be buy-in at both ends of the ice. And, you know, just even beyond Niels Hoaglander specifically, obviously it's different because he has had success at the NHL level already, but you know, you look at the job that Jeremy Colleton has done in Abbotsford, and now they add Atu Ratu there. They have Klimovich, Carlson, you know, Arshdeep Baines, Jack Rathbone is still there. They have this contingent of young players playing together with a coach they like, you know, having success. I think there are far worse things than leaving Hoaglander down maybe a little bit even longer uh, than you would normally expect because maybe that's what should have happened in the in the past. And whether it's Hoaglander or some of these other guys – Again, I can think of lots of worse things than maybe a little bit too much time in the AHL. Yeah, it's not going to hurt his development to stay down there, right? Um, You know, we've seen countless examples of players who are rushed to the NHL level, Mm -hmm. and it does impact their development, whether it be, you know, Jake Bertan and most recently in Vancouver. You could look at plenty of other players around the league. Gilbert Brule is another guy that jumps to mind with a local connection who the, the Blue Jackets put into their lineup as a rookie and he ended up getting hurt and you know that kind of impacted his development going forward beyond that so as much as i know fans are eager to see hoaglander and they say you know if it's if the season's lost already why are you playing phil DiGiuseppe and sheldon dries why aren't you playing neil hoaglander and Danila klimovich or linus carlson you know rushing players to the nhl level is not always the best path to development and you're right you know it's amazing what um what a couple of roster moves and a big trade do in terms of making you look at the prospect pool. And I'm not going to sit here and say that the Canucks prospect pool is deep by any means, but adding Atu Ratu to that group, having a guy like Hoaglander in Abbotsford, you know, bringing in a guy like Niels Oman as a free agent acquisition, you know, having Carlson playing over in North America, Klimovich continuing to grow his game. Suddenly, at least at the forward position, your prospect pool looks a little bit better than it did even a, a few months ago. So, well, yeah. you know, when he's surrounded by players like that down in Abbotsford, I don't have any issue with him staying there, potentially for the rest of the season. I guess we'll see. Well, now you add a top 10 pick and two other firsts in the next 18 months, and you've got a chance at being serious, or at least average, in terms of the caliber of your, of your prospect pool. Um, when you watch the Devils, and see the speed that they're able to play with. Um, what do you take away from it in terms of what it means for the Vancouver Canucks and their chances of being competitive as soon as next season? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple things. Obviously, the Canucks don't have the same amount of speed on the wings in particular that the Devils do, and you know that's where they're able to create a lot of their offenses. They've got some speedsters that, that can move the puck down the wing, and then they've got defensemen who can get the puck to those wingers. And that probably is, you know, when comparing it to what the Canucks lack as opposed to what the Devils have, that's at the top of my list is, you know, Connor Garland would look like a much quicker player if he was able to attack more and transition off the rush by getting, you know, good outlet passes, Mm. you know, while skating and attacking through the neutral zone with speed. But that just doesn't happen as much for the Canucks as it does for the Devils. And, you know, you see what a player like Jack Hughes can do with his speed. But, you know, a key part to that success is also 
guys like John Marino and Damon Severson who could move the puck up to him and could help in that, that transitional part of the game. And that's really what costs the Canucks a lot of opportunity for offense. Because I think when you look at this roster and how it's been constructed over the last couple of years, we have all sort of looked at it from the perspective of they've got a lot of guys who can produce. So if they can outscore their defensive issues, they might be able to have success. But the one thing that I think doesn't get talked about enough is if your defensemen aren't able to transition the puck well enough, then it takes away opportunity from your skilled forwards to produce offense off the rush. And as a result, it lowers their ceiling in terms of the overall offense they might be able to produce as a group. So, you know, it's possible that the Canucks wingers would look a lot quicker if they had defensemen that were able to help them transition the puck more effectively and so I think that's probably the the biggest tax for Patrick Alvin and company going forward is to try and remodel that blue line and again you know major surgery is the word that's been thrown out but I think this Canucks group would look entirely different in terms of the way they can transition and create offense off the rush with even one or two more puck-moving defensemen back there that they just don't have at the moment. Batch, really appreciate the time, man. We'll chat again soon. Sounds good. Thank you. That is Brendan Batchelor, play-by-play voice of the Vancouver Canucks here on Sportsnet 650, always with a fantastic job on the call, weighing in on uh, the game against New Jersey and echoing some thoughts that we've uh, had repeatedly on the show as well there at the end, right, about this, the need the need to not just defend better in your own zone, but to have defensemen who can actually contribute offensively by transitioning the puck. And I think the more I watch other teams around the league as well, it's not just the transition game, it's the ability to jump in and play with flow in the offensive zone from the blue line, right? To kind of rotate around, to get to attack in the zone. Now, we saw Riley Stillman have the nice pass from the below, below the goal line off, off the rush, which was unexpected. Burning Damon Severson, <laughs> my yeah, goodness. That was a tough look for Damon Severson. <laughs> Um, but just the, 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 they need more guys who can obviously transition the puck, but also who can just make a play in the offensive zone, who can, who can pinch in a little bit, who can make, make a pass. That's not just dumping it softly to the corner, who can get into the high zone to get open for a shot. Take fourth man's ice. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of times where it's a devil's defender. Who's one of the three guys, you know, first down. As the Devils transition, I mean, that's something we just rarely see, and that takes away options for some of Vancouver's playmakers. I mean, if JT Miller was getting passes in stride, and if he was not so worried about staying back when he's playing center, right, could play Mm -hmm. a little looser, and then with his playmaking ability, if he consistently had someone beating their check down ice... Had an extra option. When he, when he did gain the zone. I mean, then maybe we're talking about something different than me sort of blanket being like, I don't think it works, right? I, I You know, I, I don't think it works. I still don't think it's optimal, but it might look an awful lot different well, if there I was mean, a defense to support. Yeah, if you have that defense, their, their then, attack, yep. then it's a completely different uh, It's a completely different ball game. It's just a question of building that defense with the assets available at hand. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll come back. Final segment. Uh, I want to play something that Elliot Friedman had to say about Jim Rutherford, his future with the Canucks. I know that's been a bit of a talking point over the last couple of days, uh, so we'll hear about that. Take some of your texts as well. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Big opinions and good bets. It's the People Show with Bick Nazar. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Final segment of the show today. As always, we are live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. I did like this text that came in. Uh, we're talking about some of the greater structure the Canucks have showed under Rick Tockett. And this text says, more structure and still five goals against. So what's the difference? A good feeling? That's a fair point. <laughs> it's a fair point. They still had three goals in 50 seconds last night. Yeah. I mean, there's like it, it's better from a very low bar. Let's put it, let's put it that way. Structure, like, structure is not going to fix this. Right? That's the yeah. fundamental issue. And at least for me, right? I mean, I'm convinced that personnel is a bigger issue for this team than structure. That's, I think, going to be a pretty crucial argument in terms of tracing what this club does next. And so, you know, I'm curious to see how the rest of the season plays out, particularly now that, you know, Rick Tockett has had his third practice now. So we're still <laughs> we're still early days in terms of judging this. Yeah. Um, it's going to take a while, right? Like, we'll know a lot more at the end of the season. And um, in the meantime, we'll sort of – what was fun about last night was the Canucks play this exciting game. They keep pace with the New Jersey Devils. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the night, the Ducks lose in a shootout yeah. and the Arizona Coyotes win. And so it's like, no harm, no foul. That one point, whatever. Now, unfortunately, Philly lost. Yeah. So Horvath's new team well, didn't, uh, didn't do the Canucks a favor there. But. Montreal, though, is the team you've got to – like the Canucks are now tied with Montreal in points, and the Montreal Canadiens have a game in hand. No, the Canucks, uh, the Canucks have a game, have a game, in, game hand, in hand, which is bad. So the Canucks' game is yeah. in hand are now bad, yes, because yes. we're trying to be last. And the uh, and the Montreal Canadiens have one of the hardest schedules remaining. Yeah, obviously, that's just obvious based on their division, right? Like they've got a lot of divisional games. Their division includes three of the top five teams in the league. So. The Montreal Canadiens are going to finish below the Canucks. I, I would wager a lot on They're neck and neck right now. Canucks have a 440 points percentage. Montreal has a 431 points percentage. A very, very fine margin. But as you said, I think the Canucks just have more talent, uh, especially with the injury situation in Montreal and then the schedule. I think it's going to be tough to beat Montreal. No, so Montreal's that's why, going to finish beneath the Canucks. That's why I'm looking up the standings at St. Louis, Philly, Ottawa, make sure none of those teams slide down below you. That's that's job number one. That would that would uh, stick the Canucks in seventh if that happens, which is not bad. Not bad at all. It is bad. Bottom five. No. Bottom five is what matters because then you can lose both lottery slots and still keep a top five pick. Seven, you're kind of out of the main guys. You can get, you can, do you think you can get Benson at seven still? I think someone's going like, to like him enough to take him higher. That would be my guess. If this organization even likes him, they might look at him as too small and a winger. Yeah. You know, I mean, Benson's going to be one of those players where some people are going to really have a lot of time for him. Although, you know what? I will say, after the WHL playoffs, I think it's going to be a no-doubter. But no, I mean, I don't think you get first dibs on him anyway. You're going to need some other team to make that mistake for you to get him. Now... That happened in the case of Quinn Hughes. So, yeah, you're still going to get the organization's top prospect at seven. But, man, the difference between top five and top seven is big. Big! Like, it's really impactful, this year especially. I just, I mean, well, who knows? 
if they trade Thatcher Demko after two healthy games back, maybe it becomes more of a possibility, but I just don't see a route. I, I don't see a, a no, realistic path down there unless it's trading Thatcher Demko. I never have. Uh, Jeffro texts in, um, what do you guys want to see in return from some of these teams for Thatcher Demko? And look, I mean, for me, you know, we can all talk about the glut of right-handed defensemen that LA has in the market, but it very similar to the Bo Horvat thing. If you're trading a piece like Thatcher Demko, you just need to maximize future value, right? Like it just has to be those premium future oriented pieces that, you know, to be fair, they got one from the New York Islanders in the form of that draft pick in the Bo Horvat deal. You're not getting the, like, you have to view goalies differently, right? I mean, what's the top goalie trade package, right? We're talking first prospect would be what the, right, the first and the, who's that Maple Leafs defenseman who came from the Coyotes? Oh. Anyway, that guy. But he was, it was that in a first for Darcy Kemper. That's your ultimate return. Like, that's the best return since Semyon Varlamov got multiple firsts from, oddly enough, again, the Avalanche with the Washington Capitals back in the day. But, I mean, the Bo Horvat trade with Schneider would be instructive. That's a top 10 pick. I mean, so a really strong first. Yeah. A really strong first or, like, just a first. Uh, If you do better than a first and a prospect, you're sort of, like, out of range of what we'd historically expect. Number one priority for me would be another really strong first or the uh, like r- the equivalent of a really strong first in value in a young prospect in a prospect not a you know 24 year old right-handed defenseman or something that's what I would be looking for again it's just maximizing the future value and I do think Demko look the goalie market is weird but I think Demko's situation and how good his contract the potential of his contract puts it into that uh you know that range where you could actually get a pretty impressive uh return back or even relative to the goalie market. Uh 650 650 keep your thoughts coming in. I did want to play this. So this came up uh, over the weekend over All-Star weekend. First report was from Steve Simmons of the Toronto Sun and the quote about Jim Rutherford was more than one hockey person I've run into this weekend believe Jim Rutherford wants out as president of the Vancouver Canucks. That's the kind of mess this situation is in. That's from Simmons on the weekend. Now, I understand a lot of people hear the name Steve Simmons and they roll their eyes a little bit. Uh, and also, it's a fairly vague report. You know, more than one hockey person. It's not saying sources in the from the Canucks. It's not saying, you know, players, agents, whatever. It's just hockey person. It's a very broad category. So pa- Passing along. It's passing along to passing the along chat. I'm not trying yeah. to slam Steve Simmons. No. I'm just saying it's not. That's why we didn't lead the show with it on Monday, right? Like, there's also reasons why. Uh, why that's the case, but you know, in the interest, I know people have been talking about it, and just in the interest of keeping you up to date, uh, Jeff Merrick asked Elliot Friedman about it when uh, when Friedman was on Merrick's show this morning, and here's what Elliot Friedman had to say. Hey, quick quick note on Vancouver. Um, you know, going back to the weekend, you know, the, and, and the Steve Simmons uh, piece about how we're not sure what the future is for Jim Rutherford with the Vancouver Canucks. Does he want out? Uh, is he done with all of this? Uh, do you have any any any, uh, any idea if that's you know here, there, or nowhere? Um, you know, I, I think this. I, I think that uh, uh, like I, I would be a little bit surprised. Because I think the thing with Rutherford is um, he's pretty private. That's number one. Number two, the one thing I do think is I think this year has stressed everybody out. Like, not just the fans and the players, but the organization from top to bottom. 
Um, yeah. It's gone worse than everybody hoped. Um, there's been almost a tire fire every day. And, you know, things have gotten out uh, that have, you know, affected the way they can do their business, right? And, you know, the organization is trying to figure out, like, how all these things are getting out and, and what's happening. And I think it's been a highly stressful year. I just think at the end, and I think they've got some long-term decisions to make about, you know, where they're going, not only on the ice, but off it. You know, their front office, uh, who's going to be there long-term and who isn't. But the one thing I I think about with Rutherford is that he knows that if he was to walk away, this would probably be the end. And I'm not sure yet that that's what he's – I'm not sure yet that's where he is. I I think he wants – uh, I think he would want a chance to try and fix it as opposed to walk away in the middle of it. So that's Elliot Friedman and kind of elaborating a little bit and offering some of what he's heard on Jim hard, Rutherford. Hard decisions on the future of the front office. Most of these people were just hired. Yeah. I don't know. Tire fire every day, by the way, is a hilarious formulation. Yes, it is. And not entirely inaccurate, but <laughs> there's a lot in there. Like, there's the context of it has been, obviously, more difficult and more eventful and more noisy than anyone within or outside of the organization thought it was going to be this year. There's, you know, as you said, the interesting line about, you know, decisions not just on the ice, but off the ice and who's going to be there and what direction they're going to take. And then there's, you know, the the bit at the end about... If Rutherford were to walk away, hypothetically, that's probably, you know, could be his last kick at the can as an NHL executive. And is that something he wants? He's ready to embrace. But, you know, you know what that wasn't? It was not, oh, Rutherford's in it for the long haul, for sure, with the Canucks, right? Like, there's a lot of parsing you can do from uh, from what Elliot Freeman had to say there. <laughs> like, I don't even know where you start with this, right? I mean... How much, I, I like, I really, I think it would be an, an unfathomable level of damage to this organization's overall credibility were Rutherford to walk away quickly, this quickly. Like, I just think that would be really damaging. I mean, when you think about the events that led us here, right, and you think about leaving the bubble and what happened during the 2021 season, and the club's decision to retain Jim Benning and retain Travis Green. And not just retain Jim Benning, but retain Jim Benning with the instructions, playoffs or else. Mm. To do what they did in the summer of 2021, which included going shorter than they maybe could have on, well, shorter than they for sure could have with both Pedersen and Hughes. And then have that season fall off immediately the way it did, panic-fired Benning and Green, hire the coach before getting Rutherford on board, only for clear dysfunction between the front office and the coaching staff to define the next season, which once again slips out of reach immediately despite a host of win-now moves again this summer. Fire the coach, bring in Rutherford's coach, and then have Rutherford depart? 
if it were if it I'm not saying it's going to play out that way, but if it plays out that way, like it's hard to think of a four year stretch you know, comparable to that. Well, like I honestly am struggling to come up with like wh- what's comparable. I can't al- even think of another NHL story like that. It would also be, I mean, it's only what we're only less than five years out of uh, Trevor Linden walking away, like the, the last president of hockey operations. Well, that away was twenty eighteen. Yeah, twenty eighteen. You're right. There were less than five years out from that right now as well. I think that would be stunning, and I think it would really hurt this club. I mean, you know, all due respect to Patrick Alvin, I don't think he's got the same level of credibility in this market. At this juncture, as Jim Rutherford does, well, despite the fact that the front office has come under criticism, like Rutherford's got the cups, Rutherford's got the resume, Rutherford's got the 20, well, the 40 years in hockey. I mean, it's just a totally different thing. And I think there was, well, there definitely was a, a, an explicit and implicit goal from Rutherford when he came in to, you know, be kind of a mentor for Patrick Elvian and, and help him learn the ropes totally. as an NHL general manager. And that extends to the rest of the front office that they assembled here in Vancouver as well. So it would be a major departure on that front too. The only way I could possibly... We're at a very dangerous moment, I think. It feels like we're at a very dangerous moment for this franchise in terms of how do things play out now with Rutherford? There feels like there's more clouds and uncertainty than we ever would have imagined. Like, again... You know the the old, like, you're being too negative about this team, and it's like, are we being negative enough? <laughs> like, I never would have said in my wildest dreams that by the end of the season there'd be doubts about Rutherford's future with the club, right? Like, that would never have entered into my most pessimistic thoughts at any point in advance of the season. You've got the Pedersen stuff looming, right? Which could at least begin to, I don't want to use a truism like rear its head, but like could begin to play out. As soon as this summer, if it does, in fact, um, go in a negative direction for this team. I mean, it feels like there's a lot of body blows that if this organization takes are going to dramatically alter the conversation around them. Don't don't you think? Like, doesn't this feel like we could be? Hopefully we're not. Hopefully the club, you know, hopefully Rutherford sticks around because I still, you know, I, I haven't. Loved all the work, but I still have a lot of regard for him personally. Still have a lot of regard for that experience. Um, I still have a lot of regard for some of the team he assembled. Um, but, you know, if if he doesn't stick around, if there's drama with Pedersen this summer, like, what, what's the Q rating of this club in the market? If those two situations unfold unfavorably... Over the next six, eight months, like it feels catastrophic. It feels like you're in Buffalo Sabres 2021 territory there. No, like, am I, is that unfair? The Patterson one in particular. You know, Rutherford, I think you, the point you make about kind of around the NHL is very well taken. I think in terms of in this market, the fan base, look, the fan base is extremely plugged in. It's still a front office executive, right? It's not the all star player that has been the guy for this team since he came into the league. So that to me is like the ultimate, oh boy, you're in a really tough situation with the fans. If it ever unfolded like that, the Rutherford would be really, really tough too. Um, This, this text comes in. I just turned on my radio. Do I have this right? You dudes are going after Rutherford's job now. No, we're not calling for Rutherford's job. Quite the opposite. Really. We are responding to uh, some reporting from Steve Simmons. And then also some commentary from Elliot Friedman this morning talking about, 
whether there's any substance to the idea that Jim Rutherford might himself want out of the job. And, you know, the other thing I'll say is <laughs> no one no one in their like, I don't love the club's direction since Rutherford took over, but no one should be judging the work of a top, top hockey operations executive like in full in 14 months. Yeah. Right. I mean, how often have our conversations about, you know, the, the, the like troubling signs versus Rutherford's resume come back to how poorly the first year went in Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you do need time, particularly given the mess that was inherited when this front office took over, right? My, my overarching concern about the direction of the Canucks in, you know, the early, the nascent stages of the Rutherford era is that in some ways I feel like they're still trying to run a hockey team and I don't view the Canucks as being in a situation where, like, don't get me wrong, they're obviously a hockey team, <laughs> but, yes. but they need to be run unconventionally. You need to be looking at this as like a value rehabilitation exercise if you're going to get back on track just because of how complicated the mess was, right? Like, it wasn't, it wasn't empty cupboards with a still playoff caliber roster. Like what? Like that's a classic. That's normal, mm. right? There's a lot of teams that match that description, and that's what Trevor Linden and Jim Benning inherited. Now, the empty cupboards thing was always a little overplayed because if you're able to get a second for Garrison and a second for Bieksa and um, a player, a prospect, or a player, a pick, a first rounder, and Spiza, another player for Jared McCann, and on and on and on down the line, your cupboards aren't actually empty. It's just that your value is located in a different part on the roster, right? The problem, or or in your hockey holdings, the problem is they didn't use those right. But that's conventional, like that. That you can have a conventional response to that type of problem. What, what you can't have a conventional response to is being like bad at the NHL level with very little of actual value on your NHL roster, a really weak prospect system, right? I mean. Batch was right when he said, you look at how the Horvat trade changed the complexion of the club's prospect system, and it's like, yeah, a, a, a sea change. But a, a first-round pick and a second-rounder three years ago, or two years ago, shouldn't have that big an impact on a system. It's just that when you have one of the league's worst systems, boy, it's a breath of fresh air to have, you know, hey, within 18 months, we could be a, we could have an average system, <laughs> right? Like, that's that's... That's the change. And by the way, like, I know that sounds negative. It's not. That's huge. Massive. Team also doesn't have cap space. Team also, I mean, the, the old checklist, mm -hmm. right? We can go down it. When you have that little of value, when, 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 when a club is that stuck in that many different areas, I just don't think you can do something conventional. You can't keep building like, you know, brick by brick, pecking away, whatever, whatever phrase you want to use, I think you fundamentally need to, like, reorient your perspective. So it's like, Kuzmenko's a good player. You should sign a good player to a fair contract, right? Like, usual, conventional thinking, yes, agreed. But for the Canucks, I, I think you have to accept, like, we're going into a downturn here. The bill's coming due for the way we've operated this short-sightedly over the past few years. And, and to me, the Dylan Cousins deal really sort of puts a exclamation mark on that right like in a world where teams are going to have tage thompson and dylan cousins down the middle for 14 million and the devils are going to have he and hughes at 15 million 
and and sort of go down the list. Like these teams that are coming up now that are already better than the Canucks and have cost certainty and younger players and better prospect systems. Like, how do you catch those teams? If the goal is winning a cup, you have to be like, okay, there's no, how can we rebuild our defense? You know, like all of the issues that are sort of smoldering around this daily tire fire, you know, off Griffith's way. Like, how, how do you how do you put out the fire and begin to construct something worthwhile that can actually win a cup in this marketplace without taking an intentional and thoughtful step back and accumulating yeah, for you a gotta few look, years? Yeah, you got to look longer term. That's, you have that's to. That's the answer. You and, have to. You know, just to wrap up the, the Rutherford stuff, I mean, first of all, I thought it was a really interesting clip. That's why I wanted to play it from Elliot Freeman. Obviously, this is... This is speculative. Nobody is suggesting that anything is imminent here on the Jim Rutherford front. And look, if I had to bet, just knowing, you know, he said it himself at that press conference, right? Like, they have a challenge. He's he's up for a challenge. That's Jim Rutherford. He's competitive. He's obviously confident. I would bet on him sticking around. And as Elliot Friedman uh, said, trying to, you know, would quote too. unquote, fix this and uh, and get this team back on track. The one thing I will say is interesting, and again, to come back to, to what Friedman had to say there, you know, the the questions that they need to be answered about where they're going from an on-ice direction. The only way I could kind of see it making sense from Rutherford's perspective is if there has been a realization in the Canucks front office that actually this is not going to be a retool. This is not going to be a two- to three-year job. This is going to be a longer process. We might have to trade one of our key players like Thatcher Demko, even though we're on a great contract, in order to get it done. If there had been some sort of awareness uh, or acceptance of that in the front office, is that something Rutherford would be interested in sticking around for? Now, again, who knows, right? And the Canucks have been very, very, very reluctant to make that kind of uh, to to have that kind of assessment in the past. So I'd be surprised if that was the case. But I'm just trying to try like spitball ways it would make sense. You know what I mean? And I think that's one of them. If there's a change of direction in the front office and it's just not one Rutherford wanted to be a part of. Wow. Yeah. I mean. Well, isn't that one of the, like, things that could possibly make sense? I mean, that's what happened with Linden and Benning in reverse, right? Sure. Yeah. It, it would be out of character for the Canucks organization. It wouldn't be out of character. <laughs> at, at this point, what would be? Right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, have we reached that moment where you could hear a bit of news about the Vancouver Canucks and you would believe it? Like, have we not reached that point? Well, I like if it was Canucks announced they're going to rebuild. <laughs> I'd be like, "Oh, hold on, <laughs> is this a parody account?" Hey, let me make sure this is coming from a verified account. <laughs> yeah, I gotta, I gotta click through the profile and see if this is actually. Yeah, okay, who good this point. is actually from. Good point. It's not from uh, somebody who's you know fair game. <laughs> but other than that, yeah, I know your point. Uh, I absolutely know your point. And again, look. People were talking about it, so we wanted to get it out there. Some of us, someone's uh, accusing us of rumor mongering. I what do you mean? We've been giving the appropriate caveats, I think. Uh, we're quoting, you know, the Toronto Star and, uh, or sorry, Toronto the Toronto Sun, Sun and, uh, and Elliot, and Elliot Friedman. Friedman. I mean, that puts us on pretty solid ground, I'd think. That was my thought. Yep. Uh, anyways, thank you to everyone for listening. Canucks are back in action tomorrow against the New York Rangers. You'll be able to hear that here, of course, on Sportsnet 650, and we all have full game day coverage as well. That will do it for us today. The PDO cast with our guy Dmitry Filipovich is coming up next. You've got it on Sportsnet 650.